this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is New Books in Film. I'm Annie Burke, and today I'm sitting down with A.S. Hamra, film critic at The Baffler, former film critic at N Plus One, and regular contributor to outlets, including Book Forum, Harper's and others, and author of the 2018 collection, The Earth Dies Streaming, film writing 2002 to 2018 from N Plus One Books. I'm thrilled to be sitting down with Scott today, uh, as I hope we can pick up on some of the threads and themes I discussed with my guest from last month, historian of film criticism, Daniel Fairfax. And with me, I'm so uh, glad to sit down with really one of the most prolific and engaging practitioners of criticism working right now. Uh, by his own testament, this is a quote, my guest does not luxuriate in mediocrity. So I've I've done my homework and everyone should prepare themselves for a conversation just above average. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Okay, I'm going to get right into it. What's the matter? What's gone wrong with film criticism today? Well, most film criticism that's written today is uh, a form of publicity for movies that's completely dependent on film release schedules and uh, access. Uh, film film uh, criticism has merged with entertainment journalism more than ever. It's not really an independent entity uh, in most places. And there are, you know, there are more people that want to be film critics than there are jobs. So there's a vast, you know, uh, really army of underpaid people or people that now work as amateurs and write for free for places like Letterboxd, which is a social media site that, um, you know, people can write short reviews of films on. And what, what really has led to the decline in film criticism besides the capsule review form that started uh, really picked up the most in the 1980s, I think, is um, Rotten Tomatoes, which aggregates film criticism and assigns a very loose score to films, uh, a percentage score based on how many good or bad reviews a film has gotten. And then, then you know, marks films as fresh or rotten, a kind of thumbs up, thumbs down approach for the 21st century. And that, that, that site is owned by two studios, Warner Brothers and Universal. So, you know, it's, it's, it's collating criticism in the service of the studios, not, not readers or cinephiles or film fans or movie buffs or however you want to characterize people that go to the movies. You, you make um, an interesting 
you make an interesting point in your in your discussion of Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which is that sometimes it's misleading even the formula that they what they decide is a fresh or a rotten review. And reading your criticism, um, I don't think an algorithm is up to the challenge of figuring out whether you what you thought of movies, because sometimes your assessment is sort of so oblique and dry that I have a really hard time believing that your work could fit the Rotten Tomatoes algorithm. I think that well, must be on purpose. I mean, I, I write specifically so that Rotten Tomatoes can't tell whether I like or dislike the film. But the, 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 I mean, I'm on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, critics oftentimes don't ask to be part of that. People that ask to be part of it, I wonder about them. But they just, at Rotten Tomatoes, find you. And, yeah. and put you up, put your name up there and put the name of the magazines or, or whatever that your newspapers that you write for. And then they start collating reviews and assigning them these scores. And, you know, an actual person does that. Someone reads your reviews and then decides whether they're fresh or rotten. And in my experience, approximately 20%, maybe 25% of what I write is mischaracterized by the person doing that. And I've noticed for other reviews that I read there, you know, um, I try not to read film reviews before I've written uh, my own, if it's something I'm, I'm going to be writing about. Mm -hmm. But sometimes afterward, I'll look to see how a film did. And I'll read reviews and they'll be given scores of fresh or rotten. And you can tell that it's the opposite. So there's not a lot of, I don't have a lot of faith in their scores. But the scores have become a form of publicity. You know, movies, uh, you know, studios want to be able to put that sunburst on the poster or other kinds of advertising that says 100% fresh. And if you, look at, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, you know, they try to collate film reviews from past decades as well. You'll see that, you know, 20 years ago, films did not, there were far fewer films that had scores of 100% or scores in the high 90s. There was a far greater, you know, um, you know, range of thought and opinion on any individual film than there is now. Somehow, Rotten Tomatoes has created a herd mentality that uh, they've focused, you know. And I'm not sure why that is exactly, except for now, people are afraid to actually criticize things, and we live in a world of likers. Well, I'm but very glad that. I'm not interviewing a liker right now. Um, I mean, I like lots of, yeah. not, not, not I know you do. I'm sure you do, Scott. <laughs> I'm not trying to be negative. Whenever, every film I see, I want it to be good, you know? Of course, yeah. We all want it to be good. But I just want to pick up on one more thing you said before I ask you a little bit about how you became a professional, um, not liker necessarily, a professional critic um, is, I, so I just want to draw out sort of the things that we're saying that have gone wrong with criticism is kind of a corporate or studio sort of control over criticism turning into a kind of extension of their PR departments and also the contingency and the the inability for critics to make a living. It seems like yeah. together you can look at something like Netflix's Tudum, which seems to combine both of those, right? You have like the studios taking over their own criticism branches, but without, there's not even the kind of professional security that would come with that. You get that other piece of it too, um, well, which is that well, everyone got fired basically. Yeah. I, wasn't it Tadam? Oh, was it? Tadam was the name of that. Tadam? Like Tada? Like Tada. Yeah, oh God. 
Latin not, to da. Not, okay. Not, I don't think they wanted it to be called too dumb. You know. <laughs> like tedium. I don't know. Um, yeah, they had a problem naming things at Netflix. You may recall they, they tried to separate off their DVD mail order segment or whatever that whatever division and they called it quickster and everybody got mad at that quickster okay no i totally forget that i do remember when i could order dvds to my home though because that that is i remember when netflix did that when they decided they were more of a stream streaming service than a mail order dvd rental outlet they Mm -hmm. split off the division that does the dvd mail order and they changed the name to quickster that's terrible q w i A-S-T-E-R, I think it was. And they, um, you know, Netflix subscribers were very annoyed by how dumb that was. And they quickly changed it back a week or so later. But they have a problem with names at Netflix. Well, I wonder Um, if it's being run by a bunch of elder millennials like myself, because Quickster sounds like Napster to me. And I wouldn't really want to have any connection to Napster, just associated with the slow dial-up. And um, I mean, it's hard to know. know. But what, what, it's hard to know what process led to the creation of the name Quickster. Impossible. Or the, or the creation. Black box. Yes. Or the creation of the name Tadam. <laughs> Tadam. Neither, neither of those things exist anymore, although I think they are still publishing content on Tadam. Oh, really? You know, I, I don't know. Everybody got laid off and then they, you know, yeah. they moaned and gnashed their teeth and rent their garments about it. Mm. Uh, I mean, that I have no sympathy for anyone that went that quit a job to go to work for Netflix. I mean, it was obvious that they were just going to be doing PR and con- branded content at best. At best. Well, I have I have sympathy, but um, I have a di- I came I came to my love of film and film writing in a slightly different way. That's that's my very slick way of segueing into another question, Scott, which is how did you come to writing for film and arts criticism? My sense is that you did not work writing press releases for Netflix. That doesn't sound like that was your start. What was it? Well, Netflix didn't exist when no, I- No, it did not. Film criticism. No, you're right. Uh, I, I just, but I, I really want to emphasize, Annie, how little mm-hmm. sympathy I have for people who work for Tudam. <laughs> I really I mean, do I, have sympathy, which is why I was changing the subject. But yes, you have the floor, they, Scott. They, they, were, they were completely rooked. I mean, it was, it was a con job. And, mm-hmm. and I hope that they learned something about the nature of American corporate capitalism from that, you know? They're I mean, unemployed, many of them, so I think they did learn. Yeah, I, 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 well, you know, judging by what I've seen on Twitter, I'm not so sure of, about that. Oh, but, they got jobs? Well, that's good. No, 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 I don't mean they got jobs. I mean, oh. that they didn't learn. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I, I just think that that was, you know, I'm surprised there's not more writing about that. I know there was some you know, the, there was some collapse of Tadum pieces, a couple, but, you know, that's another one of these things that, you know, you know, business journalism around entertainment is not very thorough. And it's, it's also been largely co-opted by publicity, you know, so the goings on at Netflix are now becoming more well known as it starts to fail, you know, and scramble, which Mm -hmm. it's doing you know, and the collapse of Tudum was part of that. And, yes. you know, I would love to read more, you know, business writing about that kind of stuff. Always well, as you all- note that a lot of journalists can't make a living uh, doing uh, what they're doing. Know. So maybe that's why you're not seeing that kind of reporting. Um, yeah, well, you know, the maybe they would need to go work for a place that <laughs> is like Tudum and then they get fired. That could yeah, be a problem. 
maybe that's yeah i don't think netflix is too dumb was going to do any actual business reporting unlikely but, um, unlikely but just a general bigger picture journalism problem is uh you know, nobody's making yeah. enough money well journalism is in a lot of trouble that's for sure but yes. you know the last piece i read about netflix for instance was in the hollywood reporter and it was about ted sarandos receiving the person of the year award at the can lion oh, uh, Festival. Yeah. And that award was presented to him by Kara Swisher, who is a New York Times tech columnist. Oh. And and at the same time, the next morning, they laid off 300 more people at, at Netflix. Their stock crumbled another 70 percent. So I don't know how Ted Sarandos is the person of the year. You know, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. You know, he's going to can Lions so he can start getting advertisers to pay money to advertise on the new lowered tiered ad supported level of net netflix subscription uh i mean netflix is you know started out as a company that sent people movies through the mail it was very cinema focused mm -hmm. and now it's becoming um you know a, a television broadcast network in an age when the television broadcast networks are completely obsolete so how this adds up to person of the year i really would like to know um but getting back to how I started in film criticism, I guess, um, mm -hmm. rant about Netflix all day. <laughs> but um, I was I started writing for zines in the 1990s. And I was I was the co-editor of a zine that was published in the 90s in Boston, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I was trying to write, you know, professionally as well. And I was a projectionist in a movie theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was the Brattle Theater. Um, one of the great movie theaters in the country that's been showing movies continuously before the pandemic since the, I think the 19, late 40s or early 1950s. Um, and that's, that's how I started. I was writing, you know, in some, what were essentially underground publications. Something else you mentioned in your book is that you grew up um, in the sort of in the shadow of or in the sphere of Janine Basinger at Wesleyan and the kinds of programming that are happening in that part of Connecticut. And I thought that might be of interest to some of our listeners, because so many people listening right now are in the academy in some form uh, and might know who Janine, uh, Janine Basinger is. Uh, but I, it seems to me that she shaped sort of your coming of age and the kinds of movies you grew up. Yeah, seeing yeah, as I, cinema, yeah. treating as like the films of your youth, so to yes, speak. Yes, that that is true. I grew up, I grew up in a very very small town in Connecticut, and it was kind of a rural town, and there were only about three or four thousand people in the town when I was growing up there, and it was right next to Middletown, which is where Wesleyan University is, mm -hmm. and there was no there was no movie theater in my town, or the two towns next to it. So in order to see movies. You know, we had to go to Hartford or New Haven. There were there were two. Uh, there was a second run movie theater in Middletown, and there was a drive-in that was open in the summer. But there was really no first run movie theater. So I was very interested in um, seeing movies. And uh, you know, Wesleyan University showed all the films that they showed for film classes, also to the public because they did two shows of their movies, and they showed them in an, uh, movie theaters that they had on campus, and for a few dollars members of the public could go in and see these films too. It was kind of like a film archive situation, like the Harvard Film Archive or, um, you know, the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley. But it, was, it wasn't quite as grand as those. And they, you know, she was the head of the film department there, uh, Janine Bassinger or Basinger. 
And, um, you know, I saw a lot of films by, you know, classic Hollywood films and, uh, you know, by Ernst Lubitsch and Raoul Walsh and Howard Hawks and John Ford. And I saw a lot of foreign films by, you know, Bergman and Godard and, um, you know, all sorts of things, you know, two or three times a week once I got my driver's license. And I saw a lot of those things before I ever saw, you know, um, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that. So, you know, I was seeing those things during the blockbuster era. This was the, you know, the early 1980s, mid 1980s, I guess. And, um, you know, it was great. It was a great education in the cinema and it kind of inoculated me against, against, uh, you know, crap, I mm -hmm. guess. Lack of <laughs> you know, it was really fantastic that they offered that to the public. I don't know if they do that anymore because they probably don't project movies on film anymore. Probably not. Do you think that results... being a projectionist shaped any of your sort of interests as a film writer or is that just sort of another piece of your of your journey in loving I, movies i got that i got that job because i needed a job but i right. i was already writing i was already oh, writing when excuse I me okay yeah. but just for zines you know but mm -hmm. earlier you know why why i was college aged i had worked in movie theaters i worked in a movie theater in boston called the nickelodeon okay. which was a basically an art a five-screen art house and, you know, I learned, I, I was just, I just took tickets and, you know, cleaned up the theater and sold popcorn there. But I would go up to the projection booth. Those are platter projectors, which was different than the Brattle, which has the old school, you know, 20 minute changeover projectors. Um, but I would go up to the booth a lot and try to learn to be a projectionist when the projectionist would let me hang around. And the movie that I spent the most time with at that was, was Blue Velvet. Mm. The David Lynch film. Uh, I, I I heard and listened to that film probably forty times during that period in my life because I was interested in learning about theater projection. Yeah, so that was that was an interesting that's quite, thing. That's quite a film but, to learn on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, still, I still know all the dialogues of Blue Velvet because of that. But you know, and and working at the Brattle too, you know they certain kinds of films get played over and over again, like Hitchcock films mm -hmm. or Casablanca famously there. They're, they're, the Brattle is famous for its Bogart uh, series that they run at certain times of the year. So, you know, certain, certain movies, you know, I heard them so much that I, you know, I learned the dialogue from them, you know. Very interesting. And also another th great thing about being in a projection booth is that you're by yourself and as long as everything's set up, you have a lot of time on your hands to read. And I read a lot of, you know, I read constantly in the booth, you know, which, which was great. You know, it was great for my literary education. I read complete, you know, works of certain authors during that period of my life. And I wonder if projectionists do that at all now because of smartphones, you know, they don't have to bring a book to the booth. They can just do stuff on their phone if they want. Yeah, probably, probably not. But I have to say, Scott, it feels like that experience ha has had some impact on your writing, because a lot of the time when you're writing about a film, I notice that you bring in references, it almost feels like you're watching things through the lens of other things. Um, I love your essay about Kiristami and the Purge. But I wonder if reading in front of a projection 
what while sitting in the projection booth has sort of created you as a kind of dialectical critic where you're always clashing together different texts if i may well, if i may I mean, overanalyze or just that, straight up analyze your work i mean that that yeah that's that's probably true you know i never really thought about it that way one thing you're that welcome. was interesting <laughs> thank you one thing that was <laughs> that's okay one thing that was interesting about the Brattle Theater projection booth is actually behind the screen. It's a rear screen projection system in which the projectors don't face the screen but are facing each other and project into mirrors, which is then bounced onto the back of the screen. Um, it, it was a system that was invented for cruise ships, for places where there's not a lot of space for projectors. And the Brattle had been a legitimate theater before it was a movie theater, so it didn't really have a booth. It has a balcony, but there's no booth uh, behind the balcony. So uh, I was actually sitting behind the screen when I was doing all that stuff, mm. not in front of the screen, like in a traditional booth, which is projecting from above the seats. I was projecting kind of on kind of parallel to the seats behind the screen. Oh, okay. I don't know what that does, metaphorically speaking, but that's an interesting technological um, I mean, footnote. I, I, to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to write something about this now, but to me, when, you, when you're a projectionist, you go into that booth and you spend, you know, eight to 12 hours there. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're projecting Lawrence of Arabia or something all day, it's more than 12 hours. And being in, the, in a projection booth is like being in a submarine. You know, it's dark, it's not that big, and there's this giant glass window looking out into the sea, which is the movie theater, which is the movie itself, you know? And so like Arrival. Like Sorry, like a scene from Arrival. No, nothing like Arrival at oh, okay. all. Not yeah. a sea of dark. And, okay, no. Okay, go on. <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean by that, though. Actually, well, I mean, just because the image of I don't know the darkness, and then she's standing in front of it. Never mind. Go on. You mean you mean gravity or Arrival? Arrival. Maybe uh, I'm not. I, a, no. I, I didn't like Arrival, so to me it wasn't <laughs> that at all. Go on, go on, Scott. I interrupted you. <laughs> Anyway, it's it's kind of it's kind of like it's a very it's a very it's a very immersive experience where it's almost like you're traveling underwater, you know, mm -hmm. uh, over over time, you know, and uh, you know it, it was it was really great. It's a great job. It's really a great job. I mean, it didn't pay that well, um, but that was the only problem with it. Other than that, it's really an excellent job. I highly recommend it. Although. There's not many places that do film projection anymore. No, it sounds like it's a job as rare as the one that we're talking about right now, just sort of being a paid film writer. Um, yes. Maybe even rarer because I don't know how many theaters actually use that uh, kind of projection technology anymore. Um, let's talk about your reviews. Now, the, the reviews in your book, uh, many of them are these kinds of Ser these like capsule reviews of very different films, but you find this kind of thematic link usually to connect them all together. Uh, so for, you know, you're what you've written, but for our listeners, some of them are like uh, titled depiction is not endorsement and that that links together zero dark 30, um, Amour and Django Unchained. Another one is called One Word, Authenticity, which includes Arrival, which we just talked about, Loving, and uh, one of my least favorite movies of all time, Glad You Agree, Nocturnal Animals. Um, so oh. I hate it so much. I just remember reading what you wrote about it. You know, funny, a funny made when me I angry saw, again. When I saw Nocturnal Animals, I saw, it, I saw it at BAM in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. 
and I saw it like the weekend it came out with, with someone, I went with somebody else and um, it's the only, it's probably the only movie I've ever seen where when it ended and everyone stood up, the person who was sitting next to me, who's a stranger, uh, not the person I'd gone to the movie with, but the person on the other side, that person stood up and, and said to me, was that the worst film ever made? <laughs> Just totally out of the blue, you know? Yeah, maybe uh, that was Tom Ford's intention to bring people together over but, you know, make, by making the worst movie I think in the history people, of cinema. I think somehow the reputation of that film has grown, though. So. Oh, in a positive direction? Well, yes, in a positive direction. I'm I'll not get ready sure. for some hate mail from the New Books Network listeners. Whenever, whenever you say something is terrible like that, it makes people want to see it. So. Oh, let's not talk about it anymore then. Well, um, I mean, to me, that's an important point because even when I write something negative, I want the person reading it to want to see the film themselves to see if they think I'm right. No, I, I, that makes sense. And that is wanna... sometimes the impact that certain reviews will have on me, negative reviews. I wanna be part of it. Right, um, I don't want to turn anyone off from seeing something, you know, or I don't want anyone just to accept what I say as, as true. You know, they, I, want, I want it to motivate them to, do do you know i don't know to think to think about it you know and in that movie in particular although i despised it i thought it was uh a, a, an amoral disaster made by someone who doesn't know what he's doing right uh, that was an insult to the actors in it because it has very good actors in it, it does Amy. it really does um you know it, it's so it's so repellent to that film it's hard to understand what he was trying to do and furthermore the story it involves a um book that's being written it's yeah. important in this discussion the the film's relationship to the publishing industry was completely fantastical yes i don't remember when she is sent the galley of the book and it's like a velvet in a velvet box i mean the, the whole thing was so out of touch with how anything works for writers the movie's an insult to writers really you know, I'm going to be generous and call myself a writer. And I, I won't say I was offended as a writer, but I was offended as a viewer because much of the, the film is a book with is a story within a story uh, that is so painful to watch. And yet you're aware the whole time that it's a story. I wondered what I had done to deserve this horrible book. I didn't break up with Jake Gyllenhaal. I didn't know why this was happening uh, to me. That was my take on Nocturnal Animals, but I haven't seen it since it came out. And I did see it well, in theaters. It was, it was also a deeply misogynistic film. I, yeah, I would say more than, than a writer. I was, as a woman, I was appalled and really uncomfortable the whole time, which sometimes is a very informative and important artistic journey, but not that one. And, uh, and furthermore, it was an insult to, you know, one, one area of cultural production that's very easy to mock is the art world. Mm -hmm. and, and films usually do it so poorly and, and, and they try to more often than that maybe they should. And that was a film where, you know, his attempt to mock the art world really fell flat in a, an embarrassing way. And, you know, presumably he has some real acquaintance with that world. It seems like it. Uh, I mean, he's fat, a Tom Ford is fashion. I think you either wrote in that or a different review about how the fashion industry loves to see itself represented in film as sort of fascistic in some way. That's I wrote see that, that as the ultimate compliment. Was that in the... Uh, nocturnal animals piece that i wrote that i don't, I don't know. know i can't remember it could have been 
I don't know if you reviewed The Devil Wears Prada, but it was in one of the shorter pieces. Um, as I as I mentioned, these are capsule reviews, but they all kind of blend and bleed into each other. So I can't always remember where you say what you say. Um, well, well I, I'd like to describe those a little differently maybe than you did, because they're not, okay. they're, I don't think of them as capsule reviews. Okay, give, give not, me a new term. Not, yeah, they're not, I'm not trying to do the things that people do in capsule reviews because I leave so much out that would normally be included in a capsule review. And, and also those, those are usually longer than capsule reviews. So a capsule review to me is one paragraph that's like under a hundred words. Okay. And, and, and some of my, some of those sections of those pieces, like there might be a review that's one sentence or two sentences, but there also might be that one that's, you know, 600, 700 words. And, and what those are, um, you know, and those are my columns. Those are my columns for N plus one in the Baffler in which I write about, you know, you know, 12, you know, like 10 to 10 to 20 films that I've seen in like the last quarter. Cause the magazines I write for usually, you know, uh, don't, don't come out every month or every week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I see a certain amount of films in the time that I have before my deadline. And then I try to write about all of them in those pieces. And, and, and I put them in a certain order you know, I construct a kind of narrative order that's not that's not obvious, I hope. But I don't I'm not trying to link them thematically. They they really are just a collection of whatever I happen to see in the period that I had between columns. Well you may not so, be trying to, but often I find that like you the what you set up in one of the discussions sort of pays off somewhere else or you find connections between them. Um, yeah. I try to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I don't, and, you know, I mean, that is a question I have for you, which is like sort of how do you decide what to include and what not to include in these reviews, like in these sort of collections of different films. I, I assumed that it had something to do with when you saw resonances between them, but maybe that's something that came later. Oh, yeah. That, that it comes, well, I mean, it comes when I'm writing. Right. Piece. Yeah. And I'm not like seeking resonances between them. Mm -hmm. But resonances exist between them because they're a group of films that are all made around the same time, usually. Although sometimes there's older films in there that I've seen that have been re-released because there's a lot of great movie theaters in New York City where, you know, older films are, you know, shown and re-released where they play for a week or two weeks. And I write about those, too. But um, with new films, because they're all made, you know, relatively close to each other in time or very close to each other in time. They're going to have things in common because they're speaking about you know the time in which they're made, and um, you know e even inadvertently, of course, they'll have things in common. You know, so oftentimes I do call those things out, I guess. But there's but there's none of those pieces that are were meant to that were designed to do that. Let's say that's you not know? your master plan going into what choosing what to see. No, um, no, I, no, I don't have. I don't have any plan in choosing what to see. I don't have any plan in choosing what to see. I just go to what I, I want to see, you know? So N plus one and Baffler, they never tell you what they want you to see. Oh, no. no. They, never tell, they never tell me what to see. They, they trust that I'll see things that are worth writing about. And sometimes so, so, you write about movies you haven't seen. Well, there's only, yeah, there's a couple of times that I wrote about films that I didn't see because I was turned away from the theater. Let's talk about that because I actually don't see that a lot in criticism. Well, yeah, 
uh, is people writing about movies they didn't watch. But you always manage to come up with some kind of connection. How do you, I mean, it's easy enough to decide what movies you want to write about when you've seen them. But what makes you, what motivates you to write about a movie that you haven't seen, considering that if we're going to include it to writing about any movie that you've never seen, you could write about anything. So when and why do you decide to write about those those turn away moments or those give up moments? Because I assume that there are other, that sometimes you don't write about the times you don't go to see the movie. Anytime I go to a movie, I write about that. And then anytime I see a movie, like, let's say, you know, you, you, you've you read the book, I know. So there's, yes. there's movies I reviewed that I saw because they were playing at a bar, like when I was sitting in a bar and the movie was on television. I like that you one. <laughs> yeah. There was, there's a piece where I reviewed a film that I wasn't actually watching, but someone sitting in front of me on an airplane was watching it. So <laughs> I, I just couldn't hear it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, any, in the, in the time, in the time between columns, any film that I encounter, you know, if I see the whole thing, I, I will write about it. So in the, in the case of the ones that I didn't see, in one case, I went to, the, it was like a Sunday morning matinee screening so it was like a in new york city so it was like a 10 30 a.m show and i had a big cup of coffee and they wouldn't let me into the theater and, and that that movie was life of pie um you know of course you can hide your coffee in your bag if you have one you know kind of but i didn't have a bag so i was just holding this coffee in my hand and i just bought it and you know the the kid you know you know who lets you in after you buy your ticket, when you go up like the three sets of escalators or whatever, however many there are, you know, this was at the Regal Union Square. Um, You know, he wouldn't let me in with the coffee. And he said, if you want to go into this movie, you have to throw this coffee away. And I said, well, you guys don't really sell coffee, you know, and whatever. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let let me in with the coffee. So I didn't get to see that movie. And, you know, and I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to circle back. You know what I mean? That was, that was, that was the one chance I had to see Life of Pi. And I didn't get to see it. So that's what I said. And and, and the other instance was, I was going to see a, uh, actually a film by Jean Cocteau that was playing in re-release. But at the same time, there was a publicity event for a movie called Hotel Artemis happening at the same theater. Yeah, and this publicity event had caused the showtimes of all the other movies to be pushed back like 40 minutes somehow. And, you know, there was no warning of that. So I, I went to that movie theater and uh, met somebody there, actually. And the, you know, the movie was, this film Hotel Artemis was holding up the showtimes. So there were a large number of people there waiting to see other movies who couldn't and the crowd was getting angry and there was a lot of security there, you know, this big Hollywood premiere for this movie that no one cares about and that nobody saw uh, had all sorts of security guys there and a lot of publicists. So I just wrote about that scene, you know, because that's what I experienced when I went to see that movie. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, 
Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, I, I've noticed that when you don't write about the movie, when you haven't seen the movie, what you offer instead in those rare instances is it feels like sort of an ethnographic or an anthropological study of movie culture. So I really enjoy those ones because I usually see something in them that reminds me not necessarily of the film, but like of what it's like to go to the movies right now. Yeah. When I go to a movie, I don't remember the going. I just remember the movie. But when something falls apart, what I remember is that process of trying to and failing to and leaving early or not getting in. Um, And you write about those in a really funny way. Yeah. Well, when when things go wrong, you remember them more. But I remember Mm -hmm. I remember going to every movie that I've seen in the theater, like going to see it is part of it. You know, it's part of it to me. And so, you know. Uh, every film that I've seen, which is, you know, a lot of movies, um, I pretty much remember, you know, where I saw it, who I saw it with, and so on. Well, that must have made the last couple of years a little tricky. Oh, the last couple of years have been a complete disaster in terms of film going, of course. Yes. I mean, it's been been just a, just terrible. I mean... I mean, for it, everyone, but I meant specifically for you, that must be... Yeah, well... I mean, it was, uh, I mean, the columns, I have another book coming out, I hope, I think by maybe by the end of this year, um, that will include all the columns that I wrote during the pandemic. Oh, gosh. And, you know, mm-hmm. those, a lot of those columns, you know, I had to start watching films at home, which I didn't used to do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I only watched films at home if I was reviewing them, not as opposed to reviewing them, you know, mm-hmm. like if I, was yeah. watching, if I was watching it again, I would watch it at home on a DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, you know, on, I didn't, before the pandemic, I didn't have any streaming subscriptions, none. Wow. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I mean, as a film critic in New York city, I just went to see everything in the theater. Mm -hmm. I I don't live in New York city to sit at home watching television, you know, and the difference between going to a movie and doing that is just vast to me, you know? And, and you know, part of going to the movies too is you know you you meet people afterward, or you go out afterward with the person you went to the movie with, or you have dinner beforehand, or or maybe you go to another movie. There's just so much around the experience of seeing a movie, you know, in in the movie theater, you know, and you know, actual cinema as opposed to watching television by yourself at home. I mean, they're just completely unrelated experiences to me. And you know, I know, I know, you know, I worked in television for eight years mm-hmm. in for a consulting company that did brand strategy. So, you know, I had to watch every television show that our clients made. You know, that the clients for that company were ad-supported cable, um, premium cable, and broadcast television. And I just had to watch so much TV that the difference between the cinema and television became so, so stark to me. And for most people, I think in their minds, the the two things are merging. Of course, yes. Yeah, because of the way that people watch things now, you know, which is of course what the studios want. I mean, the pandemic was such a great opportunity for them, which they really seized. And it was great for Netflix too, you know, until it wasn't Mm -hmm. because the quality of the stuff they make is so low you know, and they were spending so much money on it. I mean, this is an unsustainable model. There's only so many people that they could get to subscribe to it, you know. Um, but, you, you know, I don't enjoy television. Um, I don't think it's good. I don't like the endlessness of it. 
you know, how much of it there is and the, the episodic nature of television series that, that have no end point and just get worse and worse over time. Um, yeah, and when I stopped working for that company, I was really happy that I, and I stopped watching television completely. And I didn't watch it at all until I quit that job in 2016. And I didn't watch any television with the exception of, I watched Twin Peaks, The Return. And, you know, if there was some horrible tragedy in, in, in our nation, of which there are many, I would watch the news, you know. Right. I, didn't watch any, I didn't watch any TV at all until the pandemic happened and I couldn't go to the movies anymore. And then I signed up for Criterion Collection and, you know, Mubi and, you know, Netflix and various other things that I could watch stuff. And, and th at that time, you know, I, I go to press screen. I don't go, to, I don't go to that many press screenings, but I do sometimes. I prefer to see movies after they come out with a regular audience. But, you know, the, the distributors started doing the press screenings through video portals that the critics had to kind of sign up for, or in some cases beg to be allowed to see. And that really was terrible. And I, I, wrote, I wrote a piece about that in Filmmaker Magazine. Okay. I have to uh, check because, that one out. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. You know, when, when you're sitting at home watching a movie, you know, it, it, you know press screens at a certain time, like they're, they're oftentimes in the morning, uh, like at 10 in the morning, 1030 in the morning, or they're at night and they're called all meetings and there's like 2000 people at them. So, but when you watch something at home, you know, you can watch it anytime, right? You have two days or something to watch it. You can watch it anytime. You can pause it. You know, you can, you know, and, and, and you know, life happens when you're in a movie theater watching a movie, you know, you, you don't answer your phone. You don't stop the movie. You're not in control of how long that takes to play the movie. Whatever the running time is, that's how long it takes. When you're at home, it's the opposite of that. So during the pandemic, you know, a lot of bad things were happen, happening. You know, a number of people I know died. So, Sorry. yeah, I mean, they were mostly acquaintances, like people's parents and things. But, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Still. Oh, terrible. Yeah. But, you know, if you're watching a screening at uh, what's a, essentially a press screening, but you're watching it at home, you know, someone can call you up and say, oh, you know, my best friend just died. You remember that guy, you met him, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's just so, it was just so strange, you know, to, to be trying to do your job really and watch something and you're watching it at some weird time because it's the pandemic yeah. and people are, people are calling with bad news and, you know. I mean, you could turn off your phone, but who does that, you know? Yeah, yeah I understand. Watch a movie at home. I mean, most movies you watch at home, you, you, you hope someone calls you, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that was, a, the, I mean, the pandemic changed everything. It was a complete reversal of my life. And, you know, of course, that's trivial compared to what happened to some people. But, um, you know, to me, it was very um, grueling. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, it changed, it changed the nature of your job and the kind of work you were doing. Um, it sounds like, and it, um, while in sort of an, on an institutional level, it, it changed or an industry level, it, it sort of collapsed, it hastened the collapse of everything into content. Uh, yes. which you're telling, I mean, when you say you don't like TV, how do you, and, and I'm not saying this in a, in a glib way, maybe I am. How do you even know what is TV? Uh, I mean, like an example I'm thinking of, it's not like a great 
example or a terrible example, but on Amazon, the pursuit of love, that one with Lily James, that was like three episodes of television, but in another world would have just been a long movie or they could have cut a little bit and made it a movie. How do you know when you're watching television, when you're watching a movie? Is it that it is in a film, like in a, in a theater? Is that how you make the distinction? I mean, a, a, a movie or a film is a is a, a work, you know, with a beginning and an end point. Okay. That, yeah, that happens all at once. You know, uh, in other words, there's no, you know, there's no breaks. Okay. The, the breaks are not in the in the thing itself. You know, and it's true that a lot of you know a lot of episodic television, a lot of these mid dramatic miniseries in the post quality tv era were essentially movies that they stretched out into the series i mean i've definitely watched some series that i thought is this a movie like why why is this not a movie why did they make this a tv I show mean, i actually watched part of underground railroad and that really had a, a feeling of being something that was a film that was stretched out over many episodes and it didn't really work for me is that because but, people don't want to make it like the people who are making it have a lot they want to cram into it or is it that television is like the risk of like you know i don't have a better word for like trendier than movies like people like to binge tv so they want to make tv for these streaming sites what do you think the rationale there industrial, is just an industrial consideration it's not trendy yeah. you know it's they want people to watch they want people to subscribe to their streaming services and not go out so if they, they think that they bring what they think are cinematic qualities to episodic television, people will stay home and watch this stuff and subscribe to their services. And, you know, the goal of all these kinds of services is, a, is for it to become like a utility, right? Mm -hmm. It's something you pay for every month and you, you, you even forget that you're paying for it. You can have automated. I do. Automated. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 it's some weird combination of a utility like electric or gas or like the gym. If you, if you belong to a gym, you pay every month whether you go or not. You know, it's the same thing as that. If you're paying for Netflix by the month, it doesn't really matter to them whether you watch it or not. Yeah. You know. Um, I have some streamers I, where I think, oh my God, I forgot I have Peacock. Shoot. And then Peacock. I feel like I have to quickly watch something on it or cancel it. Um, well, that's, what's so, that's what's so great about Tubi, right? That it's free and it has mm -hmm. so many amazing films on it. You just have to watch those ads like, like it was, it used to be late at night on UFH, UHF stations, you know, and broadcast mm -hmm. television. Um, but yeah, I don't see, I don't believe, I think the merger, I think the industrial merger of television and the movies is a bad thing. And it's like a form of gentrification to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I, I have no trouble determining what's what. So all these common, all these conversations that happened mostly amongst television critics who were very upset when people said that Twin Peaks, the return was not uh, a television series. It was really an 18 hour long movie. I think that's exactly what it was uh, in that case, because the same person wrote and directed the whole thing. And it was designed to be like, uh, you know, a movie. So there, there, were, there were people that made television series in the past, like Fassbender, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you watch eight, if you watch, um, I'm sorry, recall, I thought I turned this off so it wouldn't happen. Hold on, a, it wouldn't happen. Hold on a second. 
You want to take the call? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I just, just sent it to voicemail. Um, oh, yeah. So if you watched miniseries from the past, like a Fassbender one from the 70s, like eight hours do not make a day, it does not seem like television. You know, Berlin Alexander Platz doesn't really seem like television because television doesn't really have auteurs in the sense that the cinema does, even though that concept is- With is, the showrunner as their closest equivalent. It's, it's not the same thing as having a, a, you know, a presiding artistic presence that is actually on the set in front of the actors, you know, next to the camera, directing something that maybe they wrote too. It's not the same thing at all. Um, and also, oh, sorry, I don't know if you could hear that alert going off, but um, television looks so different from movies. It's just so clear, you know, to me. Um, but what happened, I think, for a lot of the audience is that the, the, what they consider to be the cinema, you know, shrunk over the years in this country, all around the world, really. It shrunk to this idea that the cinema equals a blockbuster movie. Mm -hmm. That's that all it could be. And that, that, that really happened in the last 20 years, 22 years. In the 21st century, this has really happened. People's idea of what a movie is has shrunk to it being a blockbuster. Whether it's a Marvel movie or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or, um, you know, all these kinds of intellectual property movies you know these franchise movies have have shrunk people's notions of what what the cinema is so there's a very clear distinction between a movie and television for a lot of people and um you know i don't really recognize that distinction in the same way you know because of my job that I used to have where I had to watch so much TV and because of being a film critic where I have to watch so many films, uh, the more TV I watched, the more television-ish, uh, so to speak, it became, you know? And also, I don't think that um, drama, you know, I don't think something like streaming drama, episodic streaming drama, to me, that's not natural to television. Television is really more uh, things like talk shows and morning talk shows and sports and award shows and anything the news all the stuff so you think of like raymond williams and flow not the kind of dramatic episodic yes. television you binge but like the kind that sort of has that interrupted quality yes the the, the actual skeleton of television is all that stuff mm -hmm. and somehow you know all this you know so-called quality drama changed people's idea of what television was away from what it really is which is you know the, the today show and the tonight show and the grammys and football and news breaking news and you know all that kind of stuff uh you know the people television critics really started concentrating on uh you know dramatic you know tell on television drama mm -hmm. you know and i i think that the real TV that people will remember from that era, with a few exceptions like The Sopranos, I think most of what people are going to remember from that era is reality television. Mm -hmm. I think reality TV or so-called unscripted uh, television will really be the marker of that historical era. More that transition than into sort of that golden age, so to speak, or prestige television is actually, is that what you're talking about, that transition? Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm, no, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about any kind of transition. I'm saying that. You're saying a in, certain period. What period? Can you just give me the, the year? Like, what are you looking at? 90s, 2000s? What are you saying? No, I'm looking at the 21st century. Oh, okay, right now. Far, yeah. Sopranos. Okay. Yeah, and, and what I'm saying is that it will that this period in television history will not be remembered for all the prestige this, drama. Okay. It's hmm. going to be remembered for all the reality television. It's going to be re remembered for Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. And it's going to be remembered for The Apprentice making Donald Trump the president. And it's going to be remembered for Jersey Shore and all this stuff that was just seen as the worst things <laughs> that our culture could produce. That is what's going to define the period. It's not going to be Mad Men. It's not going to be these retro shows like that. And it's not going to be, you know, you know, you can name any of them, you know. Yeah, I, don't, I might have disagreed with you a few weeks ago, but after the week that we've had, I, I, I think you're right. Now I think you're right. Um, is this where you got the title for your book, which I'm going to plug again, The Earth Dies Streaming, which you can get from N plus one books and everyone listening should should purchase? Or request for their library is that where you got this title the earth dies streaming the earth this dies streaming. yeah well you can buy my book in bookstores too you know yes. you can get it yeah. uh it's great if you buy it directly from n plus one though mm -hmm. uh, but you know amazon has it online too sure um, anywhere books are sold anywhere books are sold pretty much well yeah uh, more or less you know i got I mean, I was looking for a title for the book and, you know, I was talking to a film director that I know and in our conversation, that phrase just popped into my mind because of, there's a, you know, there's a British science fiction movie from their early or mid sixties called, called the earth dies screaming. Mm -hmm. And the earth dies screaming was also the name of a pop song by UB 40 and also one by Tom Waits. Um, and, you know, the earth dies streaming just, you know, just came to me, you know, like things come to you sometimes, you know, and, right. and it turned out to be a prescient title. And I think it sold a lot of copies during the pandemic because of that, because of the title, you know, Absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, that seemed to be what was going on, you know, in, in 2020 mm -hmm. and the, you know, the book came out at the end of 2018. And I, I just done a kind of a book tour for it. And I, I, my, I just done what was the last date of that. I had just gotten back from Seattle the last week of February. And Seattle, if you recall, is really where the pandemic started in, in the US. And the week that I was in Seattle was kind of, it was about 10 days, I guess. It was kind of crazy there. And uh, you know, then I came home and two weeks later, everything was closed. And a lot of people started pointing out to me that the title of the book seemed to really be summing things up in some ways. I think it definitely does. How did you pick what to include and what to leave out from all your published work? And are there any pieces in here that were not published elsewhere? There are no pieces in the book that were not published elsewhere except for the very long introduction, which is called Remember Me on This Computer, right. which, which was published after the book came out on N plus one's website mm -hmm. and it's still there, but everything else in the book, you know, there's 40, I think 42 pieces in the book. Um, they were all published previously between 2002 and 2018. And, um, you know, during that whole period I was working, I was, you know, I had other, I had a full-time job for, throughout most of that period. 
um, as a brand analyst in the television industry. But, um, you know, so I wrote, there were some years, unfortunately, where I only wrote like maybe two pieces that I thought were worth including in the book because I was just working in my full-time job so much. But, you know, I probably the book, probably the book includes maybe 50% of everything I wrote in that period, maybe 40%. So, you know, my editor and I just picked the ones that were the best ones, we thought were the best ones, you know? Great way to and pick, the, yeah. Yeah, and the book is in, you know, reverse chronological order. So it starts with the most recent piece and ends with the ends with one from, you know, two thousand two. There's more stuff from the, there's more stuff from, the last ten years than there is from the previous six years. Before that, you know. Right. No, I, I, you, can, I, you can tell that when reading. It, mm -hmm. It's really only writing that I it's really only writing that I did since I moved to New York city in 2000, uh, and two, mm -hmm. all the writing that I did in Boston in the nineties and in 2000 and 2001, I didn't really include any of that in the book. Um, one thing I want to draw out from the book is that there's a few, have a few, um, pieces about film critics. So you write most of the essays in the here are about, um, films that you've seen, uh, but some of them are about film critics. You have essays on Jonathan Rosenbaum, David Thompson, Mandy Barber, um, very clear-eyed, but mostly admiring. Um, are they some of the writers that have shaped your own style and sort of your emphasis, not sort of an emphasis, like your entire emphasis on cinema over television and other kinds of uh, media, audio-visual media? Um, what writers have shaped you? Well, Man Manny Farber is one, and the the, uh, the piece on Manny Farber in the book was written right after he died. It was it was basically a, a memoriam that that piece. Mm -hmm. um, I just love his work so much. Um, for people who don't know who he was, who are listening to this, he was an American film critic who wrote from the 1940s through the 1970s, and. Um, published a book called Negative Space, which collected his, his essays, which I read when I was in high school and it had a profound impact on me. I just found it randomly in the used bookstore. I didn't even know what it was. I'd read one Farber essay in a collection that Daniel Talbot had done, which was a piece called Underground Movies, which was not about avant-garde films, but about Hollywood B movies. And uh, so I recognized his name when I bought the book, but that book really had an impact on me. And Jonathan Rosenbaum was a guy that I read, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, you know, all the time, as much as possible. You know, his column in the Chicago Reader and the books that he wrote. David Thompson, and the, the, the piece on Rosenbaum was occasioned by uh, a book that he published called right. Goodbye Cinema, Hello Cinephilia, mm -hmm. which is an interesting collection of his work. And you know he's from a generation that's obsessed with the death of cinema, and hence the, you know that title. You know, mm -hmm. and um, the David Thompson piece was also because uh, he had a book out, which was a memoir. It was a memoir of his adolescence and his terrible relationship with his father, who seems like he was a horrible person. And I I love David Thompson's work from the seventies, but I'm not a big fan of anything he's written since then, mm -hmm. and. I also feel 
that I have a lot in common with him as a person, which troubles me. And, uh, and so that, that was a piece about that kind of stuff. Um, but I like, I like writing pieces on critics. I wrote the introduction to um, a collection of works. Uh, well, it's, a, it's actually a book that collects Serge Denet's writing from Cahiers du Cinema from the early 60s through the early 80s that's coming out in September. It's the first in a series of translated books by Serge Denet that Semiotext is publishing. And I wrote the introduction to that. So I, I enjoy writing pieces about other critics. And in the next book I do, that will be in it and, and other stuff like that. All right, so just to remind listeners, uh, The Earth Dies Streaming is available right now where books are sold. This September, they should look out for uh, the uh, Serge Danais uh, translated works, which you are introducing that comes out in September. And yeah, they should keep an eye open for your, uh, your, your upcoming collection of criticism, which should yeah. be in the next, in the coming year. Yes. And this, the, 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 the Serge Janae collection is called the cinema house in the world. The cinema house and the world. Okay. I think you can already pre-order that. Um, yeah. Or, you know, express an interest to your neighborhood bookseller uh go in and talk uh that you want them to order it um i well, think that yeah i think Is that how it works i think, I think the sarah janae book is going to sell out fast okay yeah so if anybody, <laughs> if anybody wants to own that book if anyone wants to read that book and own it they should pre-order it okay good good note thank you well as we wrap up here um you know, I know that NPR likes to do NPR arts, pop culture, happy hour. I don't know exactly everywhere they do this, but they do a things making me happy this week. I don't want to get sued, so we won't use that. But if you'd like to end us on something that you've watched, read or consumed that didn't make you unhappy this week or leave you terribly cold, uh, I think that listeners would appreciate it. Well, the last movie that I saw in a theater that I really loved was Crimes of the Future, the new David Cronenberg film. Ah. And it's great that he, you know, he hasn't had a film out in about 10 years. So it was really great to see that. And I saw it at a Cineplex in New Jersey and I really enjoyed it. And it's really a creepy, excellent movie with um, Viggo Mortensen and uh, Leia Seydoux and uh, Kristen Stewart. And it's, you know, it takes, it takes, it takes Cronenberg's kind of body horror, which, you know, is a genre that he kind of created you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's calling this a genre is really right, but it's a term that people like to use now. Genre? Sure. No, body horror. Body oh, horror. body horror. <laughs> and, <laughs> people uh, do like to say genre, sure. Uh, body horror, absolutely. Yeah, it, 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 it takes it to a level, a kind of elegiac level that, um, that I thought was great. And it's a very compact film too. And I really enjoyed seeing that. And other than that, I'm not sure what else to recommend. I think that's a solid recommendation. Thank you. Um, anything else? I mean, you have a lot of work coming out. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Um, no, nothing in particular right now. I, I, no. Just keep no. reading your work at Baffler. Yeah, and and you know, and I'll have a new collection out pretty, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. I hope. Well, great. Well, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, and thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, this is New Books in Film, and you've been listening to A.S. Hamra. <laughs>